0: Greetings, there, SE Land. This is Twig, Anthony Twig Wheeler here with a near last, near last episode of Twig's SE Reflections podcast. This is episode ninety-seven. Episode ninety-seven. I'm gonna, I'm gonna look at common mistakes that SE practitioners make. To be sure. It's not how I like to focus. I don't like to focus on the mistakes. I know that I do, and you probably do too sometimes, right? Like, no matter what we call them otherwise, sometimes like not being our preferred self or not doing it as well as we hope that we will, sometimes we just make mistakes. And uh, there's there's no better way to to say it than, whoops, I kind of screwed up there. Hope I don't keep doing that the same way sometimes we do which reminds me of something a professor used to say to me that practice doesn't make perfect if your practice is wrong you just reinforces what you're doing wrong well i don't like to focus per se on the mistakes i i'm, I'm a fan of making mistakes i've championed and cheerleaded mistakes elsewhere on this podcast and also talked about how difficult it is to change habits, particularly when you're in sessions, way back at the beginning, maybe episode six or early on, some ideas on how to change patterns in sessions, unwanted patterns, changing them by 10% at a time, a kind of titration or Kaizen approach to change inside of your sessions when you notice your behavior not doing what you want it to do. Something to keep in mind as I Go forward here. If you notice yourself in here making, oh, that's a mistake I make. Oh, I do that. You know, join the very good group of people, (laughs) very good group of people out there who do the same thing, like myself. All of these, I've done all of these before ad infinitum. I mean, over and over and over again. It's taken me years to get through some of these. Some of them I'm, I'm still working on. Well. It's not a complete list. There must be so many mistakes. There's, there's definitely outliers. Everybody's got their own little thing that they do. I remember I had maybe about 18 months. It could have been almost two years that almost every session I did ended in people bobbing their head. Before I realized I am guiding that somehow. I'm making that happen somehow. Not all of my clients, not every single person I meet, not every single student I'm working with, not every single person I do an SE session with, not every last one of them does their head need to bobble in my sessions or turn into some kind of orienting defensive response. I'm pleased because I was able to pick up and guide people through to attending to little things that would then lead to them allowing their head to bob. But it was no way the need for each of those sessions, but it was it was constant. Yeah, of course, not every last session, but it was constant. It was the, the year of the head bobble in my sessions, and then I realized I must be doing something like that. Well, that was a mistake. I over-influenced what my clients were all about, and I didn't... Kind of adjust myself to what my individual clients were that time ready, wanting, needing to do for themselves. I wasn't able to see that, so there you go. Some of these can go on and on, and you do them for years, let me tell you, I, I know. Here's a little list I wrote last month, June, um, not complete, one of the biggest. We don't take risks, not enough risks don't try new things, you know, figure out that it's possible to stabilize people and calm people down, quiet the agitation that a person experiences in themselves typically or with you in the therapeutic context or some such, you you bring up arousal and then you can just set it right back down again to figure out how to stabilize critical. You can't really move forward into unknown territory, the trauma fields, you know, unless you know that you can get things more at ease and at the same time, whoa, if that means always doing so, never exploring activation, never allowing sensations to develop, become themselves, never allowing a client to talk wayward of what you thought you wanted to do never allowing things to change from your expectations never taking risks oh well not not going to have as much variance variability variety in your sessions as you might find would be super helpful i'll just say it like that you'd find it super helpful If things that were unexpected happened and then you and your client, your client got to experience what it's like to bring those into accord, to have a rupture in the relationship because of something that you say that's not quite so soft and savvy, but it is maybe a little bit more affrontive or a little bit more direct, but it has to be said. And yet it does it hasn't been said before. And you finally take the risk and say it and they get offended. And now you have to do a repair and it gets really messy for a week or two and it feels kind of uncomfortable. And hopefully the repair holds and says, Hey, look, I'm both doing my best and being human. And can we, see that in the whole of this, this keeps moving forward and actually grow the relationship out of it only comes from taking a risk, sometimes saying something that maybe you could have said better, but at the same time needed needed the chance to do something different than the expected. Got to be able to take risks. It's important to be able to reinforce stabilization before we take too many risks. But once we can reinforce stabilization, good not to just hang out in that and yet to uh, trust that we could get back there if we had to. Well, what else is here? Uh, Trying to resource internally too much you know, in the the sense of like, turn your attention inside, feel something positive, feel into that, drop into that blue sensation, that positive sensation, whatever language you want to use, but to attend with one's attention to their internal experience on the positive side of things for too much. You know, too much, how much is too much? You know, it's variable. It's completely variable. It's bizarrely variable from person to person and person in their moment to moment and subject to subject. And all of these different variables exist to say too much is something that we have to be attentive to. We're trying to get the right amount, that that is successful, that's able to integrate, we're able to attend to that. Okay, it gets a little wobbly it's a little harder to do but i can still do it and take it in and pay attention to it positive great stick with it but to a point to a point it can become too much make that pendulum just swing right over make everything get all lopsided reinforce people feeling distress after they felt something good some folks who have a whole lot of pull toward that distress side that feeling too long inside the body is something like turning up the fuel or lighting a spark room full of gas that just says, now I'm really ready to have a huge negative sensation. Trying to resource internally for too long, too long being very subjective. Some people can handle just a passing reflection that something is slightly positive in which case you want to just swing right past it and move right on to something else so that it's you know the right amount as compared to oh our task is to just really go in there and be in there and and be with that by a degree people can do that for a less than a millisecond <laughs> to a lots of milliseconds to longer to really able to hang out in this positive sensation for a long period of time. It's a range, and trying to exceed that range is a major mistake because, if I can say, it puts people off wanting to do it again. You know, they felt something good, it went to something really bad, you know, that's the point here is that it'll swing hard if it's an issue, and now you've had to struggle to get them out of the red negative stuff probably, in order to alleviate this thing, which some of you are hearing the subtext of global high activation here, and now you've gotten out of that, but the next time you go to helping them to feel inside again, there's a little bit of remembrance, a little question, a little thought. Is this going to go bad again? Ah, Good reason to just distract or pay attention to something else. We'd rather keep people inside the feeling like, this works and feels valid, rather than this gets all stunted and feels odd and off. It could feel odd, but feeling off or bad because of it makes people just a little bit more weary of continuing to participate. Do it two or three times, the signal builds up. This isn't worth my attention. So I think something that we try to do is to resource internally too much. You know, not that it's bad thing to resource internally. It's a great thing. Woo. Yeah. More embodiment, more engagement, more internal attention that's functional, that works. Great. Not able to stay that long before it gets bad. Learn from that and ask for less. At least that is, that's what I would say there, which leads to the next one. And that's, there's a mistake out there of not learning from the client feedback. I know we don't mean to do it. We're intending to be helpful, we come forward with these desires, these ideas, these suggestions, these invitations, these, you know, instructions. Our work, we come forward to try to help as best we can, and sometimes that makes it so that we're trying to do somatic experiencing. And then our client, they give us some feedback. They don't participate. They can't answer our questions, they get a little snide in their voice. They suggest from an easy range of observation, they suggest, I'm not ready for that, I'm not participating with that, I'm not in your game yet, I haven't joined your, your boat, I haven't gotten across the bridge that says, I'm here for that, I'm with you, I'm doing it, I'm in there, take me down the stream and let's see what happens next. They haven't said yes, in fact they're maybe saying all kinds of different kind of expressions of no, and I don't think it's anybody doing this on purpose, but it's a common mistake to not notice and take those kinds of comments about client participation, involvement, understanding, to take that as feedback that then requires the practitioner to adjust their next requests so that they help things move forward rather than continue to repeat the same kind of conditions or context or demand that the client change which eventually that's the goal is to help clients change uh, rarely because we we Don't figure out how to help them, but insist that they just jump on our train. Maybe you've been having great success by that means. And if so, you know, I'm just like, whoa, great, cool, awesome. In my world, I'm hyper, hyper attentive to the fact that my clients are constantly, constantly trying to say where they're at, what's going on for them how much they're into this, how much reservation they have around this, what the potential is in this room, and I'm trying to figure out all the time, what's their feedback say about what I should be asking for? That is a constant updated, getting better at it kind of thing, but it starts with not making the mistake of not following or listening to or adjusting because of client feedback. And clients are giving feedback every single moment of the session. Every single moment, looking away, looking towards you, being there, being not be there, this and that. All of it is feedback that, of course, we got to learn what to do with it, but we got to know that it means something. We have to be in there to adjust to that feedback. At least that's, that's my impression. Well, this is a, this is a bit more techie. A bit more technical but it's it's true it's a common mistake and it's an understandable one but a lot of practitioners confuse developmental and shock trauma issues and i think this is super well worked out by lots of folks narm i've been i've been really pleased with brad cammer's presentations for narm for dr larry heller on like identifying those differences there are other folks that have done similar things it's important to get some clarity around what shock trauma is what a time relevant event is what a event that has a beginning a middle and an end is as compared to the themes related to developmental windows during our ontogeny during our kind of developmental sequence that As we grow through certain ages, we take on certain physical and psychological themes, our bodies come into maturity, different parts of our psyche develop, different ages, our activities, our capacities, all of those things change as we grow older. And the environment, how we get to interact with the environment, who we are genetically, all of these things interact to kind of influence how well we integrate those life stages, those developmental windows, those character structures as they're often called, and those developmental structures, those character structures can greatly influence how we relate to respond to shock trauma events, things that go bump in the night, things that come on, turn on, go away, events that happen, are time limited, have this impact sense of danger response to that danger return in some way to something not as bad happening this being not the context of you know captivity as it were ideally and so what's the difference of that that developmental things can influence how we respond to those shocked events shock traumas can influence how we experience our developmental sequence all of these things are related and it's important to see differences that exist inside of them and to know that shock trauma events, yeah, with a nervous system that had a firm, solid, easygoing foundation with activation and deactivation cycles that were established, conditioned, learned, kind of felt sense integrated during the developmental period. Once we get into adulthood and we come on a shock event, a person with that nervous system configuration can really move through heavy feeling states with relative ease as they renegotiate shock events. People who have a more disturbed, more unsettled, less settled, less well-organized developmental process where there's a lot more confusion or ambient environmental danger or all kinds of different disruptions, arrests, hypertrophies that come out of that developmental sequence. You know, you come into that same shock event where somebody else was just like, whoa, this is rough, but I'm getting through it. Well, you know, we could just completely end up decompensating even from smaller events based on how our developmental sequence went more toward the beginning of our lives. These things interact and they influence one another they can also be at times really very independent of one another and sometimes need to be treated in particular sequences as people get into therapy around issues related to these and so it's important for practitioners to at least be able to recognize the difference between issues calls to action problem states that are more shock trauma arrested stress response driven like the classic traumatic reaction the fight flight freeze responses still happening or more developmental themes predispositions developed through the kind of characterological process of development and the relationship to stress therein different Needs to be some some window. Not that you have to know what to do for everybody. You don't. You just have to know. Ah, oh, this is not something that I should be working with because I don't know about this. If that's the case, you know. So it's like having some differentiation there. Otherwise, you can end up working with people where you should be more working with maybe car accidents and people who have gone through relatively uh, smaller recent events rather than lifelong conditioning processes. And somebody else who's been working the soma through a more long-term somatic psychology lens, well, they they probably have more purview over those developmental developmental hurts and insults. So that's that's a thing. That's a techie one, but it's it's in the field and we 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 see I see that mistake. It's out there. I had that mistake, of course. Um yeah, sure believing you can do this all by intuition. It's a personal opinion. I'm sharing a personal opinion here. I think it's a mistake to think that you can do this by intuition. There are several reasons for that. I'll, I'll name two. One, the sequence of the stress response is patterned and organized by evolution to run in a certain stereotypical style, you know, kind of orientation, startle, assessment, engagement, fight, flight, flight or fight, up to a point where that's not possible, freeze, immobilize, danger changes, some signal changes that says it's not as dangerous come out of freeze immobility, come back into fight-or-flight, or 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 flight-or-fight, return to orientation, settling, deactivation, etc., etc. It's like a, a nice little sequence there, any part of which might be skipped or kind of adjusted for, but there's a general pattern, and you don't always have to go through the entire thing. You could just have a tiny little blip of it, and it could come right back down. But it generally follows for mammals that sequence given you know all all things being equal in terms of activation level well that can get super confused it can get crazy confused for people you know where that pattern which feels like an intuitive pattern once you know about it but when our intuition is influenced by that pattern being confused and disrupted or by our client's pattern being confused and disrupted it's not an intuitive pattern at all. It's a completely confused pattern. Sometimes what happens in there is we, we follow along by intuition and we feel the attraction that feels very accurate, but that attraction is a signal of the confusion of not going up, not coming down, hitting one part of those subsystems, being freaked out by it, having switch around, but in the switch around, having that feel so right for it to switch around, so that feels intuitively correct to do. So we're just following the process. Hmm. I. I, I just. I don't think so. I think it's too confusing. Once you're really inside of this, even if you have an intuitive sense of rising and falling, once you're really inside of this, with more disorganized or dysregulated nervous systems that have more confusing signals, that have more variance in their pattern, I just got to say, why not inform it? Why not just have more balance between intuition and insight, learn, study, some awareness that that structured pattern needs to be replicated even in very contained in controlled and controlled in concise manner, if necessary, particularly so if what's going on when you let the system just do its own thing is confused signaling, then the stereotypical pattern, as mentioned before, would need to be reinforced all the more so that it could reestablish the pattern that, yes, otherwise the body would intuitively want to feel and follow. But having that signal confused without having structured, intentional something to reestablish that pattern, Mm. just intuitively following what needs to happen here, I think it's an easy way to not be as successful as one could be. That's what I want to say. It's an easy way not to be as successful as one could be. The second thing is that activation is an attractive force. And I know that some people manage to somehow ride above that and find their their way and distance from it to where they won't be fooled by the golden jewel inside it. But activation is a kind of magnetic force, either in a repellent sense or in an attractive vortex black hole-y kind of thing. And so when you're just intuitively tracking along with people's attractive force like that, I find it it too easy, honestly. Too easy to be overly influenced by that magnetic pull or repulsion rather than have something of a map that says, Where the heck am I? What the heck are we doing? Why are we doing this? This is the reason I've chosen to do this. We're doing this for a reason. There's, um, I think, I think there's a limitation to how much of this can just be done by intuition. Now, that said, Anybody who thinks you can do this all by technique or pre-planned prep (laughs) or pre-planned prep, pre-planned, like, you know, proposing or or planning what's going to happen. No, that's true. That's not true either. Like not a, not a chance, not a chance. It's way, way intuitive. Like you got to be so flexible with this. (laughs) You got to feel right into the moment. You got to. Sense what's going to happen before there's any real sign of what's going to happen. You got to be able to intuit, you know, sense, be informed by your, by your impressions of things. Hopefully those impressions are heavily informed by your experience as you grow it over time. And yet there's a quality of kind of like just being connected to the moment, you know, quality of intuition and thinking that this could all be done by technique. Hmm. Yeah, we, I did a podcast episode recently on, is it a technique or is it a feeling? Sometimes really got to drive things by feeling things and getting the impression for something. Other times you really got to drive things by knowing why you're doing something, where you're at, what needs to happen next. And I think at the more sophisticated levels of this work, we will find that that you cultivate some quality of balance of that. You have some intuition and you have some sense of why you're doing the thing that you're doing that's logically informed in some like fundamental way you understand the process. And it's a mistake to lean in one direction or the other without realizing that both of them um, are part of the, part of what works best to help people. Why not, it's, it's, other people have done the heavy lifting on this Other people worked it all out. Like we barely have to do anything. We can show up and they can just talk to us about it. And we can be like, oh, that's how it all works. They figured it all out. We just have to spend a little time to take it in. Here's one. Not recognizing global high intensity activation and or not noticing it and responding appropriately. Like noticing it but then thinking, oh, my client wants to to race into this storyline or, or whatever it is, um, and missing the, the comment that global high activation means. It means nothing else (laughs) is going to work. Nothing else is going to help. Nothing else is going to land. Nothing else is going to integrate. Nothing else is going to make a whole lot of difference until you address that global high intensity. It's, it's global. It's globalizing. It globalizes every signal of activation. You feel a little something, and it turns into the whole thing. Oh, goodness. How are you going to get differentiation if it does that every single time and you don't respond to that? You, you, we have to attend to that. Now, of course, when you're first learning the training, you don't know that. You don't know that until, I don't know who you are or where you are in the training, but somewhere midway through the training, you kind of get turned on to this, that there are certain... EDGE EFFECTS IN THE NERVOUS SYSTEM THAT HAPPEN, THAT ONCE THEY'RE TAKING PLACE, THEY'RE PREEMINENT. AND OTHER PROCESSES, OTHER VALUABLE THINGS, CALMATIVE, THAT HAVE CALMATIVE EFFECTS ON OTHER PEOPLE, TAKE A DEEP BREATH, WHATEVER, THEY'RE NOT GOING TO WORK ANYMORE. BECAUSE THE NERVOUS SYSTEM HAS GONE INTO THIS OTHER KIND OF ORGANIZATION THAT SAYS, GIVE ME A STIMULUS, IN THIS EXAMPLE, GIVE ME A STIMULUS, I'LL MAKE IT ALL THE MORE SO. GIVE ME A STIMULUS. I'll take it into the extreme until it collapses. Give me something to do. I'll overdo it until I can't do any more of it. And thus, over time, all kinds of manifestations of that where like the system is just over-exhausted and depleted already. It's swinging back and forth from super high charge to super low charge or what looks like low charge. It only appears that way. We could argue that it's actually in some kind of Physic- physicalist sense a higher charge where the system has less capacity to contain it anymore you could you could have wild swings you could have up 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 collapse you could have a number of different expressions of a similar kind of thing which is that things don't differentiate things exacerbate they don't go like this to that and then we see what happens next we know the trajectory it's going to go this to that to that to that to that to that, to that, to that. If you can't get some kind of separation in that process, in that escalation process, you'll um, you'll just reinforce it. It'll just every single time you you make contact with the felt sense, you ask about an experience, you make en- engagement around each other, things will just reinforce being high, high, high activation, and and so we have all kinds of techniques, right? There are all kinds of people out there with all kinds of plans for what to do. I do. That three by three simulated pendulation. Um, I think Stephen Hoskinson would call that a half sandwich now. I was taught it as simulated pendulation. I think about that in terms of like trying to get the nervous system to feel two different things one thing, orientation, another thing, internal experience, another thing, orientation again. So to to buffer the system from just running away on its own reflection of its experience by putting this orientation in place in between and focusing on that difference out, in, out as a way to say, when you go in, we, it doesn't just have to be one side meaning it doesn't just have to follow the bad negative side the system can pendulate there's more to it than this but it's a major, or I should say, it's a common problem or it's a common mistake for practitioners because if you, if you don't notice that and you just try to like swim with people inside of their global high activation and solve problems in there and tell stories and look for deactivation or self-protective responses to execute and then deactivate, well, you might just keep getting run around until you get some kind of Stabilizing influence where the system can get aroused and then settle, get aroused and then settle with some space in between them, as per a structured, you know, simulated pendulation kind of experiment of outward, inward, outward attention. Without that, well, oh, you might just be running after people, just a uh, just a whole whole lot. We do these things. I, I miss global hack. That's what I say. I miss global hack- activation. So what I finally did was, I treated everybody. That I saw for six months as though they had global high activation, global high intensity activation. I just, I'd meet them and say, okay, let's just, uh, let's do this. And then I'd run them through that little orientation sequence talked about in a couple episodes back, um, just to catch everybody who had it. And everybody who didn't have it could immediately do the exercise with zero problem. We'd move through it in four or five minutes, take up no time. Create a shared language, what we were doing. Tell me if they had global high activation intensity or not. Intensity activation or not. Global high intensity activation. I always like, I always, it's easier for me if it's three three letters. Global high in activation. Global high activation, whatever. It's good. It's a good title. It's a good thing to know about. And treat everybody like they have it for that you meet, that you start working with for the next six months. You'll catch everybody who has it because they'll, they'll have a harder time. They'll look around the room and they'll be like, uh, and they'll have a hard time seeing differentiated things. And when they pay attention to themselves, you'll see their physical process kind of run away with itself a little bit more than anybody who like just does it and settles out and looks around and engages you with ease. It's gonna, it's gonna be a different story. Another mistake, common mistake, seeking profundity all the time. Thinking that every session has to be super profound or more dangerous and more common. Thinking every minute, particularly early in the session, has to be profound. That you have to say something super SE savvy and smart and and make something really big and valuable happen in the first 15-20 minutes of the session. I don't know how long it's going to take before a person says, oh, I get it. Oh, that feel. oh, I've noticed that. Oh, that matters to me. Oh, you know, the, I don't know how long until they're going to get a felt sense impression that's going to help to solidify their sense of value of being in the room with you to where everybody will say like, oh, that's profound. I I just, some, as one of you lovely people out there said the other day, increased my cachet, you know, it's like you increase your prestige when when your client like gets the sense of it inside of themselves, some kind of quality that says, oh, now I know why I'm in here paying attention like this. When that finally happens, you can kind of like lean into that profundity more often. But until that happens, trying to make this too profound too quickly can often underserve your message. Because of course, for the new client the uninitiated client the person who hasn't really felt into themselves and noticed arousal cycles move and change and the relief that might come from allowing the say incomplete you know instruction to tighten your fist and have your fist get tight and then it releases on its own and feel the tingles that then run down your arm afterwards and think oh, wow, that's kind of an easier breath afterwards. Not everybody has gone through that yet. And if you try to talk it up too fast or you try to make it feel too much of that too soon, it could be underwhelming. It could be less than impressive. And every time it's less than impressive before it finally gets... Well, every time it's less than impressive, it builds up being less than impressive. So if it's gonna be less than impressive, which it probably is as you're getting people involved, you might as well name it that way. Oh, this might be kind of basic. Oh, this might not be so special. This be kind of pretty banal here. Oh, we'll just be starting out here. Oh, this won't be so much. Much better than, oh, feel that. Oh, just stay with that right now. Oh, you know, they just barely noticed the sensation. It's the second sensation they've ever noticed and reported to another person in their memory. Here they are telling you, oh, I feel this kind of like, well, it's just something in my chest. Like you lean into that with like profundity as though it's going to be an advanced, you know, demonstration session of value in terms of feeling state. It's not going to happen. That's really not going to happen. Nobody will come to this turning their t- well a couple people and then they're a little problematic but when no, nobody's really going to come to this and go oh I get it right away they're going to build up over 2 minutes 5 minutes 20 minutes 2 hours 200 sessions I don't know it's going to take some length of time for everybody and you don't want to lean into the profundity before they get there otherwise you'll I think make it more likely that they'll misinterpret your enthusiasm for trying to sell the product of the process rather than identify their own unique value of appreciating the process, which is what you really want in order to set the hook of their attention on this. So, so yeah, um, be careful with that seeking profanity. You know, yeah, just be careful. Another, another mistake here on my list is miscalculating that a short-term naturalist model for doing therapy, like somatic experiencing, is, has been called for years now, you know, decades. A short-term naturalistic model. It's like we miscalculate. It's a mistake to miscalculate that calling it a short-term model for doing therapy means that it should be some kind of short-term process for learning how to do that. It, it's not a short-term learning. It, it, takes, it takes, you know, it takes what it takes, but it definitely is not a weekend course. It's not a learn these three steps and you've got it. Just go out there and meet with all these people with all these variable conditions and conditioning and, and enthusiasm and antagonism for experiencing themselves. No way. It is far more complicated than that. It's far more, it's not a shotgun approach at all. I mean, you can do it in a shotgun approach. You can do it with extreme simplicity. One of the things that I was always thinking about when I was in Congo was trying to figure out what the least number of lines you need and the shortest path that you can take to give a group of people or somebody who has zero training in what we're doing, but the right kind of question guidance, right kind of lines that would help them guide somebody through their somatic experience so that maybe they were invoked with a voo sound, they were given a perturbation or a little excitation, a little exercise like the voo sound, and then Somebody who wasn't going to be trained any more than one day, they were only going to get these lines to ask, well, what do you notice now? Okay. And then based on the response, they could either say one of three lines, you know, okay, well, you notice that. And what else do you notice? Oh, you notice that. And then can you look around again? Or, oh, and you notice that. And can you allow that to be itself and just notice what it does next? And those three Different questions, which I just laid out in slight misorder for how I would want to think about them, they would be in reference to, like, the quality of the return of the question, you know, and, and could you get it to be the simplest kind of thing that you could possibly make it be and still have it be valuable and help people move through their arrested somatic experience, uh, you know, particularly of, like, arrested stress response kind of things, like anxiety and that kind of stuff. Well... Probably, that, that's got to be possible. Some, there's got to be some, the smallest amount, you know, uh, that still makes it work and be valuable. But, hey, you've listened to the end of this podcast, you're looking for something else, right? Totally. And so one of the miscalculations, one of the common mistakes of people like you and me is that because it's some kind of short-term therapy that you can see big changes for people in short period of time, that when it's a genuine shock trauma event, it really can be a very short-term kind of process toward relief that is dramatic and unexpected. And without it, as we were talking about after the accident in a couple episodes ago, it's like, Without that relief, it can be dramatic how much that shock trauma event affects a person's life in general. And with that kind of help, it could be extremely beneficial, You know, even sometimes, bizarrely to say, and not not to focus on this, but even positive to go through dangerous stuff and get to the other side of it and be like, oh my God, I got through that. Well, moving through those kinds of things, learning how to do all those things, not short-term <laughs> it it it's it's a um, this is a, a craft this is a craft it's not a short-term learning and it's great that as we get more and more advanced we're able to help people quicker and keep that short-term feasibility on there and at the same time uh-uh, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that we get to learn it fast Don't get frustrated by that, I'd say just accept that that's the environment that we signed up for. Another mistake, explaining the process too little or even too much, you know. Too little, clients just sitting there like, what, you want me to look around, oh what, you want me to tell you what I feel? Some clients, when when they give you that feedback, you got to come in and give them more information, oh well, you know, because of this, because of that. Oh, well, you know, I feel this, I feel that. What do you notice? Like, give them something to work off of rather than just these open questions where they have zero information about what you're doing and why. Very little reason to invest. No experience with doing so. Very easy to feel like they're going to do it wrong. Help them out, you know. It's, it's way too easy to expect too much from clients that don't have um, a, f- a good foundation responding accurately to what you're asking of them on the other hand you know there's somebody out there who's listening knows this because we probably a lot of us do this We you can explain this too much this become super unhelpful people could be in there trying to figure themselves out rather than participate they could be trying to where am I in the process rather than just being with the process allowing you and the trust in you to guide them through the process which is kind of more the purpose of giving them more information is to say like there's good reason for this I'm, and I'm gonna guide you with this and because there's good reason you can trust me as being your guide lovely great just the right amount or some amount but too much every single time now when I when I talk to people about this and they say oh, I, I talk in my sessions too much about the process what i tend to say is don't worry about that just keep going just keep doing it and keep listening to yourself and keep letting yourself do it you're not going to do that forever it's an opinion i don't think you're going to do it forever but i think that you probably need to complete some of the process of doing that of hearing yourself explain it of finding the words that you're going to explain it with to see your client's reactions and know if you explain it that way, they get it. If you explain it this other way, they don't get it. And maybe that even makes you end up speaking more. So over time, I think you'll have an attrition of like, oh, now that I went through that process of over explaining it, I've gotten a better idea of how and when and at what point I explain it to you know, at what level I explain it to people. That's part of the process, I think. The mistake is thinking that by explaining it the whole time or, like, focusing on the explanation or naming the process the whole time, you're helping the integration of the process. Could be with the right person, just the right circumstances, but I'd say that's an outlier and that there's a mistake of thinking too much that the information is super helpful for people the information is helpful to a point mostly that point is people's investment at the um, foundation of this we're the translator of all this information to the person's need in order to do a very basic biological process to just kind of like let these feeling states to shift and change and influence one another and help the different brain and body centers and everything to communicate with one another and for all that to be integrated, I, it's it's a spiritual thing and it's a magical thing and it's all this. And at the very base of it, there's a very physicalist kind of thing that we're doing. And yeah, we've got to get psychologically savvy or body savvy in order to guide people's attention successfully through these different nuances and everything and it makes it all somewhat complicated. But underneath this, there's a very basic biological process that... Your client could be a horse, could be a dog, could be a wolf, could be a polar bear. Still like same process, similar, different dynamics, little different family origin kind of stuff going on there. But in the main, very, very similar basic process. Go to any zoo, look around, it's waiting to happen. If you could guide their bodies, critters in the zoo, through these process, like through these sessions, you would see similar kinds of things come about, increased orientation, increased deactivation, completion of self-protective responses, activation, all arousal, et cetera, et cetera. This, this is biology, and explaining that to people, super helpful for you and me gives us permission to be in the room not super helpful to our clients past the point of they have enough in order to be able to invest in the process. That's a line from Stephen Hoskinson he used to say, or he said it once that I heard. Somebody said, how much do you tell people about what you're doing? And he said, only as much as they need in order to be willing to invest in the process. And whew, that says it all. It's a mistake to try to do more than that part of the learning, of course. This is all part of the learning. And then finally, for now, and this is all I'll ever do on this, I think, um, but trusting the process too much, or, or too little. It goes, it goes both ways that way too, right? But like, trusting the process too much, oh, the wisdom of the body, feel the body, oh, just keep feeling that. Talked about that a little bit and in following intuition or being with the positive, tracking the body too much. But really, trusting that this activation is going to find an apogee and deactivate on its own, maybe, hopefully, that's the idea. But if it's not there, something's going to have to come in and help to reestablish that pattern. Is that you? Probably you. It's probably you. It's probably some signal from you. Or it's your ability to attend to a minute, almost non-existent, or barely perceptible signal that is passing through your client's experience that they're not going to notice because they're still paying attention to, in this example, the increasing activation. So you have to be right there in order to say, pay attention now, or to give them something else to do in order to help to establish that pattern of difference, deactivation pattern. These, These things, trusting the process too little, goes the same way it's like if you always come in and tell them what to do (laughs) i i love brazil i love my se colleagues in brazil and um i've had just only really good experiences there and of course you know you learn things and you, you see things i would be in sessions sometimes down there and i'd get maybe um a a half half a moment into some kind of feeling that maybe had a tiny feeling that maybe something inside of it was going to lead to perhaps something uncomfortable, and my facilitator would ask me if I needed to go back to my resource, as though as though any contact with the sense of a lift would you know have to send me running, and this of course is nothing to say about Brazil, but just that this is where it happened to me, it's like. A very limited scope of trusting the process of just constantly 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 coming in to say oh activation do something oh something unknown yet oh do something I gotta be a little bit more trusting than that so that we can open a window and let a crack get through that's how that's how the light gets in sometimes we don't trust it enough sometimes we trust it too much there's some kind of sweet spot in there. And it's a common mistake to always trust the process or to, um, well, to do the opposite and always think that it only happens if you do it. There you go. What do you think? A list of common mistakes. There are others, I do others, I, I can think of them right now, but I'm not gonna add any more to this list. Instead, I'm gonna encourage us all, all to just go right with and be like, yeah, I do that sometimes, sir. I've done it. And um, gonna keep, going to keep trying to do it less. <laughs> yes, indeed. There we are, my friends. Episode 97 of Twig's SE Reflections podcast. I'm giving you a big wave from Lake Michigan in Illinois, right out of Chicago, the big grand city of Chicago. And I will be back with episode 98 over the weekend of August 20th. Until then, you can find me at liberationispossible.org and I'll wish you the very, very best out there. Take good care. Bye-bye now.